This morning, we have several hundreds of believers in this room, in this beautiful facility. We have participated in praise and worship with a fantastic choir and orchestra and and our wonderful technicians led by Brother David. And we have prayed prayers of adoration and thanksgiving and petition and intercession. We've done all those things already this morning. Now we're going to go and do some looking into the Word of God. Is this having church? Is this a church? You bet it is. We're doing church here today. This is church, and it's a good thing to do. Yes, it is. This is church. Now, let me show you a picture from October 1966. Can you put that picture up there? There it is. We were up at a place called the Rock Pile, right next to the demilitarized zone. And uh, when the chaplain and I happened to be in the same place at the same time, well, I would help him by leading singing in the chapel service. And in this particular case, uh, I was leading singing for, you could see we had ammunition boxes that we sat on as pews, and the chaplain stacked up some ammunition boxes to make a, an altar. And uh, I was leading the singing. Uh, we were probably singing Onward Christian Soldiers. That was one of the songs they all liked the best. When a B-52 strike came on that mountain in the background, can you see that smoke back there? Those were the bass notes. And the bass notes were so loud, we had to stop the service. That's me with my back to you. The chaplain stepped over to the side and snapped the picture and gave it to me later on. And that was a lot different than what we have at Hoffmantown this morning. But were we doing church? Yes, we were. Because Jesus Christ said in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. You see, it can be big and fancy and have a whole lot of programs, or it can be two or three gathered in my name, and it can still be church, can it? Today, we deal with the church, the bride of Christ. That's what he called it. Some people say, hey, I can be just as religious by not going to church as I can be by being in the church building. I have three things to say about that. Number one is it's just not true. Number, unless you sit in the church and just daydream through the whole thing. Number two, in Hebrews 10.25, we are told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Hebrews 10.25 is our, our key, our clue that we're supposed to come to church. That's one of them. And another one, number three, staying away from church sets a poor example if we're going to call ourselves a Christian. To those over whom we have influence, if you just stay away from church, 
they think, well, you must not be really serious about your Christianity. So going to church is an important thing to do. Now, let's take a look at the New Testament church, if we can agree that church is important. The New Testament church. What is church? The word church literally means called out. So the people who are making up the church literally are those who have been called out by God for a special purpose. It's closely related to, if you remember one of the words we talked about last week was sanctification, one of the big words, and sanctification means set apart. So we are called out. We are set apart for God's special purpose. Sanctification is that process where we go about doing the thing that God wants us to do. As church, we are called out to do God's special purpose. He wants us to do about doing his belief or, or his purpose. Now, there are two definitions for church. The first definition is what a lot of people call the universal church. That is all believers of all time. It is everybody who has accepted Christ, who, is, who believes on Jesus Christ as their Savior for all time. That's one definition. And that means that you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've accepted him as your Savior, are a member of the same church that Paul the Apostle was a member of. You're a member of the same church that Peter preached in back there. You're a member of the same church that Martin Luther was a member of. You're a member of the same church that those martyrs died for their membership of. You're a member of that great church of all believers of all time, past, present, the same church that the, the wonderful martyrs in the, in the Muslim countries of today were all members of the same church and those who will in the future come to know Christ. We're members of the great church. And it also refers to the local congregation, the local group of baptized believers in Christ. So it's the universal church, the big church of all time, all believers, and it's talking about many times baptized believers. Now, the first ones, the, all, one, all of them, Ephesians 5.25 speaks to that. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, and the local group of baptized believers, we see that in Romans 16.5, where it's, it's one example, and you see it all over the New Testament, but here's one example. Romans 16.5, where uh, Paul says, greet the church that is in their house. So he's referring to a local congregation when he says the church. Now the new church, the New Testament church is our model. That's who we want to look to. Remember the church though is always the people, not the building. Now we refer to the building as, yeah, there's a church on every corner and you know that kind of stuff. It's just because that's kind of the way that we do it. But you need to remember that the church is the people where two or three are gathered together. Some things the Bible tells us about the first century church, things that we need to know as we think about what the church is, how it got started, 
how important it is for us to know the beginnings of what the church was all about. They met on Sunday. Now, the Sabbath was Saturday. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and all that? But Jesus came and, and Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, he said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. And so he made some changes and, and so on. But, Jesus, but, but the, that church of that time, when Jesus went away to heaven, and we'll talk about that in just a second, but the, the, the church that started meeting started meeting on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They celebrated the first day of the week that Jesus was resurrected. A couple of examples are found in Acts 20, verse 7, and 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 are places you can look to see that they celebrated. Their, they, had, they had their church services on the first day of the week in the first century church. The first century church was supported financially, excuse me, with bake sales and camel washes. <laughs> Not so. They were supported by tithes and offerings. Acts 2, 44 to 47. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 4. I'm saying this so you can, those of you that are taking notes. And Matthew 23, 23 are all references, some of the references that talk about the church being supported by tithes and offerings, okay? The tithes and offerings went to do whatever needed to be done by the people who made up the church. They supported missions. They supported the facilities, of course. Now, they supported the outreach efforts. They buy the literature today. They pay for the salaries of those. Paul talked about the support he got from the, the, uh, the churches where he went. They took care of all that. Brother Shockley, was an, he was probably as old as I am now. I thought he was ancient when I, I knew him in Hegerman. Uh, but... Brother Shockley would go out and take his morning constitutional walks early in the morning, and sometimes he would stop by our house when I was about 10 years old, and our family, there were seven of us, would be eating breakfast around the, around the table, and he would knock on the door and come in and sit down with us and just visit with us. Back in those days, you, you did that sort of thing. That was in the 50s, and he would just sit down and talk to us and, and reminisce about when he was a pastor in Oklahoma around the turn of the 20th century, around 1900, and, and he talked about one of the churches, when he first started pastoring, I, I think it was his first pastorate, that they didn't pay him a salary. And he pastored this church for a long, long time. But when he started out, there was no income for doing that. He just worked at odd jobs. He worked on ranches. He shooed horses, and he did this, that, and the other. And people would give him canned goods, and when they butchered a, a, a beef, well, they'd give him some of the beef, you know, and all that. But they didn't pay him any salary. And so at a business meeting one time, one of the people in the church stood up and said, I move we start paying Brother Shockley $10 a month. And somebody said, I second the motion. And then, they then another guy stood up and said, I'm against it. 
$10 a month? And, he, and these, when he was asked why he was against it, he said, I've always thought the preacher ought to live on the souls he saves. <laughs> and Brother Shockley's sitting there telling us this story, you know, while we're eating breakfast at our table at Hagerman. And, uh, and he said, Brother Shockley said, well, I stood up and I said, I ain't never ate a soul and I ain't never seen nobody that's ate a soul, but I'm sure if you could eat a soul, it'd take a dozen like yours to make a mess. <laughs> the church needs to pay appropriate salaries for its folks, for its ministers that labor in the vineyard. I, he didn't say if he got the 10, or at least I don't remember if he got the $10 at that point. How the church began. You can read about, how, about its beginnings and its development in Acts and in the New Testament letters. But it was established by the Holy Spirit during the Feast of Pentecost 50 days after Christ ascended into heaven. Christ was uh, he, had all, he had spent 40 days after he re resurrected from the dead uh, talking to people. He met with 500 at one point. So a lot of people saw him after he came back to life. And then he, they were watching him as he went up into heaven. 50 days later at Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit descended. And you can read that great story in Acts 2, 1 through 13. The Spirit... When he did descend, he came upon all the believers, both Jews and Gentiles. So what he was saying is, hey, I am for everybody. Aren't you glad? The Holy Spirit is for all of us. God is no respecter of persons. The same Lord over all is rich unto all who call upon his name. The people from the various nations who were there at that time heard the speakers speaking in their own languages. That was one of those Holy Spirit things that happened. They heard in their own language. Isn't that neat? They, they were able to, to hear God speaking in their, uh, through the speaker in their own languages so all believers of all nations were invited into his church. All of us. Now let's talk about the membership of the New Testament church. The New Testament church was made up of baptized believers only. Baptized believers only. Acts 2.41 tells us that after the Holy Spirit, and you can read just before that, after the Holy Spirit came, and all those people experienced the Holy Spirit. Before that, by the way, when the Holy Spirit came on somebody, it was for a purpose. Uh, like the example that we like to use is Saul. When Saul was the king of Israel, the Holy Spirit came on him to be the king. And then when he messed up, then the Holy Spirit left Saul and, and went on David. And, and David then, well, but now the Holy Spirit comes to everybody 
who accepts Christ as personal Savior. All of us who have prayed to receive Christ have the Holy Spirit living in us, giving us a sense of direction and all those things that we talked about the Holy Spirit uh, last week, week before last. So the Holy Spirit is with us. And when the Holy Spirit came after Peter preached that great sermon, boy, would I like to preach a sermon like this. 3,000 people got saved and baptized in one day. Whoa, man. So, baptized believers only. And I believe that each congregation, whether it is this congregation or the little small congregation somewhere else, each congregation that acknowledges Christ as head will have the right mix of talents and capabilities to do the mission that God has called that congregation to do. Now, he may bring more people in, the church may grow, and he may expand the mission and do more things. But I think at this time, whatever the, the mission is that God wants that church to do, he will bring their talents and capabilities to that church. Remember, we are called out to do what God wants us to do. And, by the way, the local congregation... This congregation determines how to do the logistics of membership. Obviously, you've got to be born again. You have to know Christ, and you have to be baptized. I just said that. But how you go about doing the logistics, I, the way I was raised, if somebody came forward, come down. Guy says, I was a member of uh, First Baptist Church in Decatur. And so the pastor says, uh, and he says, I'm coming on promise a letter from First Baptist Church to Cater. And the pastor then says to the congregation, George comes on promise a letter from First Baptist Church to Cater. All those in favor say aye. Aye. All those opposed, no. All right. Thank you, Brother George. Welcome to our church. Y'all come down and give him the right hand of Christian fellowship. And that was it. He was a member. A lot of churches now are saying, no, we want you to go through a, y'all do this. We want you to go through a class so that you understand what our mission, what our purpose is, and, and some things like that. So it's up to the local church. You can do it any way that you feel like it's the right thing for your congregation to do because that's, that's, a, that's a, 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 a direction that you can take however you feel like is the right thing for you to do. All right. Let's talk about the leadership of the church. How is the church led? Christ is absolutely the head of the great church. And he must be the head of the local church if it's going to be its most effective. He's got to be the head of the local church. What the local church needs to do is pray that God will show them Show us where Christ is at work, and let's get involved in what Christ is doing. That way we know that we're following the leadership of the head of our church. Jesus, what are you doing in our community? What is it that we can do to be a part of that? Show us how we can be a part of you as the head, as the leader of our church. Help us not to try to push ahead of you and not recognize you as the head of, church, of our church. Help us to recognize you, Jesus Christ, as the head of our church.
We know you're the head of the universal church. Nobody would get saved if you weren't. But are you the head of the local congregation? Help us to look to Jesus. And then we look in his word to see the intricacies of how he teaches and what he wants us to do there as well. The New Testament church generally has two categories of officers, the way I interpret it. It has pastors and deacons. Now, the pastor many times uh, can also be called a bishop or an elder. A bishop or an elder is also a pastor. Now, while most evangelicals hold with what I've just said, there are some exceptions. And for example, larger churches, and this would be true of our church here, uh, may have a governing body of elders. And these people are carefully and prayerfully selected by the congregation as a whole. Which takes us to the governance of the church. Who runs things? Hopefully, it's very prayerfully done, but the New Testament church was democratic in the way they did business. They are often seen making decisions as a body. It was not dictated by some worthy high guy up on top that says, this is what you all must do. It was through prayerful diligence, the body comes together and asks God to give us direction, and then we make decisions. Acts 6-5, Acts 6-5 tells about the local body selecting Stephen and the other first deacons, choosing Stephen and six others. Well, we say deacons, it's, you know, more or less. Uh, but it was the, the, the seven first ones that were chosen to be essentially uh, evangelists from the, the uh, local congregation. But the, they were democratically selected by the local church. We also see that the local congregation was autonomous. Autonomous. They made their own decisions. Again, they didn't have some big council up somewhere telling them what to do. The local congregation of the first century church made their own decisions. That, I think that that's, a, that's an important element. And no higher earthly power told them how to conduct church. Nobody called David and said, David, I want you to do these hymns this week, and this is going to be the focus of your, uh, and nobody called me and said, this is going to be the focus of your sermon this week, because this is what we call the, the kind of year that we're going to do. Nobody did that. We follow the direction that we sense that we get from the, from the Lord as we, as we pray and ask his guidance in what we're going to do. Now, David gets my, uh, my sermon notes ahead of time. He gets my, my PowerPoint. So he, he knows what, what we're going to do. But those times when he didn't get it, it's amazing how often. David, where are you? Oh, okay. It, it's amazing how often it jives 
because we're both praying about, Lord, what do you want us to do? Isn't that, isn't that something? It just it comes together because we're asking the Lord to give us a sense of direction. And the music fits what I'm preaching about like that. It's not spooky. It's just interesting, you know, that, that, the, that, the, that the Lord works that way. Uh, nobody tells us how to, how to conduct church. Now, I've attended some high church where they do everything, you know, and, and I'm talking about in, in, in our what are normally considered less high denominations, and I've attended some really low church. But you know what? The question is, is the Holy Spirit present and is Christ honored? And he can be honored in all those. And thank you, Lord. And then we read of no creed that they had to sign in the New Testament church. Now, I'm Southern Baptist. We do have the Baptist faith and message. Uh, but that's not a creed that you have to sign. It's a, a statement of faith. It's a guideline. And you can be a really good Southern Baptist and not believe everything that's in the Baptist faith and message. Now, I like the 1963 version because my dad was on the committee that wrote it. <laughs> I better like it. Well, uh, but they've come out with one, you know, if it was perfect, they wouldn't have needed to come out with the, the, the 2000 one. But there was another one back in 1925. Yeah, so they, why do they update it if it's perfect? It's not. It's, but it's just a statement of basic beliefs. But again, it's not perfect. It's just, but we don't have a creed that you have to sign up for. Cooperation among churches is a really good thing for us to do. It is absolutely biblical. The New Testament churches are often seen sending people or material help to other churches or missionaries to foreign lands, taking the Great Commission seriously. This church, Hoffmantown, is affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention and numerous other organizations that may even include churches of other denominations. You all cooperate with a lot of different organizations in order to reach out and share the gospel with people all over the world. You do a lot of that. Cooperation for the biblical cause of Christ is a really good thing to do. And I think that's something we need to keep in mind as local congregations. Now, this may be, this is a very important part of the message, and it may be the most important as we talk about the purpose of the church. What is the purpose of the local congregation? What is the purpose of the church? Here are some of those purposes drawn from the practices of the first century church. Number one, to worship God and pray together. To worship God. And pray together. They sang and they praised. We could see in the illustrations where we read in the New Testament about the first century church that they were singing, that they were praying, that they were worshiping God. How important is that? Man, it is so important to just keep on worshiping our mighty God. Second, 
to learn the ways and the word of the Lord, to listen to preaching. Thank y'all. Jesus frequently himself quoted from the Old Testament. Jesus wanted us to learn the scripture. Then we have the rest of it that was given to us, the letters from Paul that tell Christians what we need to know about, uh, about Christ and about, uh, about being a church of his and the other things that we can use to help us understand about our faith and about Jesus Christ himself, the ways and word of the Lord. Evangelization, evangelize at home and abroad is the third thing. Teaching people the gospel, how to know Jesus Christ personally. And if you're not doing that, you're missing one of the primary things that God wants us to be about. Showing people how to have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Are you doing that? Now, I'm not just talking about as a church, but the way that works is for individuals within the church to share the gospel with people that you come in contact with. Have influence in your family at the workplace and other places. Share the gospel. Evangelize. Fourth, minister to the needs of each other and to others. The New Testament church says they had all, the scripture tells us they had all things in common. They cared so much for each other that they had all things in common. They took care of each other. We read about the widows and the orphans being particular targets of care and love and sharing. And then the fifth, they had sweet fellowship together. Sweet fellowship. How's your fellowship? Ask the Lord to show you where you need to make improvements in those areas if you, if you do indeed need to. They, it was said of that church, oh, how they love each other. Love each other. Sweet fellowship. Now I conclude my message by talking about the two ordinances of the church. Two ordinances. These are not, it's, I'm talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are not sacraments. The word sacrament carries with it the connotation that it's an important part of your salvation experience, that it helps you get saved. These don't help you get saved. There's one thing that makes you get saved, and that is accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, letting the blood of Christ wash your sins clean, and repenting of your sins and making him your Lord and Savior. That saves you. But these other things, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, the ordinances are in memory, are important steps that you take in obedience to Jesus Christ in your life in your uh, life. Baptism. Baptism. The word bab uh, baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means immersion. Now, that picture that you see there, that's Chaplain Collins. He's a Baptist named Tom Collins. Isn't that great? <laughs> that kid that he's baptizing got killed not too much later. But Chaplain Collins uh, baptized, uh, uh, was, uh, was a wonderful Christian 
chaplain, and he led Marines to the Lord and would baptize them in a river. And when he baptized them, he didn't put them down in the river and sprinkle a little water on their head. He put them all the way under. And he, just as you saw in that picture, baptism, immersion. When Jesus was baptized, it said he came up out of the water. Now, his sprinkling didn't start happening until like the 2nd or 3rd century A.D. Immersion. Uh, it's an outward expression of an inward experience. Therefore, the person being baptized must be a believer before they are baptized. It's believer's baptism. If you were baptized as a baby, they used the wrong word. You were dedicated. There's nothing wrong. It's a beautiful and warm experience to, be, to have baby dedications. And we've seen that right here in this church. And we, in a, almost every church. You have baby dedications. But, but it, get, it confuses people when you put a little water on them. Because that's not baptism. Baptism comes after you receive Christ as your personal Savior, and that is a decision that you can only make when you're old enough to understand the difference between right and wrong. When you pray to receive Christ, then the first act of obedience, that's what I like to say, the first act of obedience is to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost to... Uh, Identify the believer with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. If you were baptized as a baby, you just got a little water on you. The, the word baptism is the wrong word, okay? Will you go to hell if you were not baptized correctly? No. No, you won't. But the first century church did baptize correctly, and the first century church is our model. And so don't you think that's a pretty good thing to do? Let me suggest, if you have never been baptized, believer's baptism, and you're saying, well, I got baptized as a baby, do it right, okay? There, I would love to baptize you up here with immersion, or one of the other pastors would love to do that. It's a, just a great symbol. It's a great ordinance of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's you saying, hey, I have Jesus Christ in my life. And you can do that. You can make that step simply by coming forward at the end of the service. One of the counselors will be here at the front. And you can come forward and say to the counselor, hey, I want to get this thing done right. And they'll talk to you about the next step to take. And it can be done. All right? That's baptism. Now the Lord's Supper. Quickly, what, a couple, what some others believe about the Lord's Supper, those that practice it as a sacrament. The Catholic Church teaches, it's a long word, transubstantiation. Why do the Catholics only do long words? I don't know. I have wonderful friends that are Catholics, but, but, but this is transubstantiation. Transubstantiation means that they believe that the wafer, the, 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 the uh, bread, and the wine literally become 
the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That when the priest does what he does, that those become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So when you take them, you're literally taking into your body the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's transubstantiation. That's not, we don't find that in the Bible. Uh, that's not what we believe. The other one is consubstantiation. Consubstantiation is uh, Lutherans believe consubstantiation and maybe some others. And that means that the wafer and the wine take on the spiritual body and blood of Christ. It's, uh, they, they take on a, 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 a spiritual dimension. So when you take it in, you're spiritually taking in the body and blood of Christ. We don't find that. The biblical Lord's Supper is that the Lord's Supper is a memorial to Christ's broken body and shed blood. It is a memorial. It's what we remember. In Luke twenty-two nineteen, as he was serving the supper to his disciples, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We do it as often as we do it in remembrance, saying, oh, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for me. Oh, thank you, Jesus. It doesn't have some mystical power. It's just a thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven though, warns us that it's for believers only. It says, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in a minute. If you've never prayed to receive Christ as your Savior, this is not for you. If you have prayed to receive Christ, this is so you can remember what Christ has done for you. Verse 28, Matthew uh, for 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight calls us to self-evaluation. It says everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That means if you have sin in your life, that means if you know of somebody that you've got a problem with, you need to commit yourself right now to take care of that. Talk to the Lord. Lord, what do I need to do? Show me what I need to do to take care of this issue that I have. Oh, God, make it right so that when I take this Lord's Supper in just a moment, that I will have complete freedom and openness with you, and I won't have this mess to get in the way, that it'll be open communication and communion with you. And verse 29 goes on to say, It must be taken Seriously, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Don't play games with the Lord's Supper. God's warning against that. Take it very, very seriously. When Jesus died, when he went through that terrible passion, when Jesus died for us, he wasn't playing a game. It's very serious stuff. 
Now, as the servants, the servers distribute the bread, I ask that we all prayerfully prepare ourselves for this observance. Jesus, thank you for sacrificing your body to pay the death penalty for our sins. Amen. Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. On the same night, our Lord took the cup and gave it to his disciples.
Jesus, thank you for shedding your precious blood to wash us white as snow. Amen. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me remind you that at the close in just a second, we'll have counselors standing at the front if you want to make a decision for Christ. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus the Son purifies us from all sin. When they had sung a hymn, they went out. Would you please stand? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. God bless you. We'll see you next week.